From the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, this is Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti-Racist, presented by the Metro Human Relations Commission. Hello, my name is Mariam Abel-Fazli, and welcome to Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti-Racist by Abram Kendi. Filmed in the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, and I am joined today by my colleagues. Um, I will let them go ahead and introduce themselves. Let's start with you, Dewana. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Dewana Wade, and I'm with Salama Urban Ministries. Uh, hello, I'm Eric Brown, and I work in local government. Um, I'm Mariam Abel-Fazli. I'm on the Metro uh, Human Relations Commission, and I'm a writer and a social impact consultant. Hi, I'm Daria Ford, and I work for Legal Aid Society of Middle Tennessee. Um, and hello, my name is Jamel Campbell Gooch. I'm the Deputy Director of Gideon's Army, local organizer and advocate. More importantly, I am from here. Great. Um, well, we're really excited to be here. We are covering Chapter 17 of Ibram Kendi's book, and that is, um, I don't know, uh, Yes, exactly. That is the success chapter. And I was going to say it's, it's a daunting chapter in an odd way because, as he says in the beginning, success, the dark road we fear. He also says something like um, racism is terminal, terminal and curable. Um, and I think that that sets up the difficulty and the challenge and also the hope of this chapter. And it's really exciting for me to be talking with you all, all local Nashville leaders, on this issue of success. What does it take and how do we get there? Um, I'm gonna start with the hardest question and go straight into the matter. He talks a lot about definitions and words and the meanings of things. And some of this is really hard to grapple with. Uh, some of it's very new. I'm gonna ask you, Jamel, uh, how to be an anti-racist leader. Yeah, I think, um I want to answer that in, in several different ways. I think that starts with realizing where our own personal work is and realizing that we've been socialized to behave in certain ways, especially when it comes to race, gender, all of those things. And we need to be able to work on ourselves while doing the work. Because if we don't, then we end up actually recreating the power structures that we've been socialized to navigate. And those power structures are inherently racist. And then I think on the opposite fold too, I think, and this very much so speaks to my socialization as a black man um, and my identity. Um, I think we have to grapple with the fact that all people benefit off, all people benefit off of environments of racism. And I think that's one place that we're gonna have to struggle through um, in the next coming decade as this country becomes a more browner place. We're really gonna have to struggle and, and talk about how white, we are all white supremacists in one, in one way or another. And it's gonna take both doing our work from an honest place and being vulnerable enough to really sit with the fact that black folks and all non-white people also benefit off of environments of racism. That's interesting. Does anybody else wanna chime in on that? So I absolutely agree. Um, I think it's important, as you said, for us to do the personal work. And honestly, I believe that that is painful, right? Because nobody wants to admit. It's easy for us to think about um, people who are non-white, I mean, yeah, people who are white 
as racist, but it's really hard for me to think about the ways that I perpetuate it and the ways that I've internalized racism um, in this white supremacist society. And so um, to be an anti-racist is to work every day and it is to confront myself every day. And um, confronting myself every day is not a lot of fun. It's a lot of reflective work. And so I think it's important. Um, and I, I like the fact that um, we're having the conversation. We talked about that earlier. I like the fact that we're actually having the conversation right now in Nashville, but um, it's hard work. It's hard work. It really is. Um, I think about the same thing. I, I, I think Kendi's book is asking us to do really hard things for all of us. It's not, it's not letting anyone off the hook. Uh, and by defining so many words, it's a book of definitions. He's, he's, he's handing out consequences in a way that in the past we weren't able to have. The next thing that I think about is he, he talks about covert and overt racism. He talks about historians that, that use that as a way to say, okay, you know, covert is, you know, when 500 black babies die of malnourishment. But overt is when someone strikes a, a church and burns it down. He said, there's no difference between the two. And when he does that, it makes us all culpable again, right? It makes us, and, I, and that's intentional. And I, I wanted to hear from you, Daria, um, what you think about that and that uh, distinction and how, as a leader yourself, you're having to navigate. It, what does that mean for a leader? If we have to both point out and fight covert and overt, um, what does that mean for you and, and, and what you do and the work you do? I think one of the challenges with being an organizational leader that I see right now, lots of organizations are putting out statements and they're making a stance. But I think organizational leaders have to really look internally at themselves and at the organization and start saying, how am I showing up? How are the people in my organization being treated? And what policies do we have in place that may be preventing um, some of our staff from moving forward. And I think having real dialogue within the organizations and then reviewing that policy step by step to make sure in my hiring practices, if I have minorities coming into my organization, do they feel accepted? I think really diving into some of those things is really how you start making change, like that concept of um, locus of control. As a leader, what can I control? And that's what I can do. I can go to my organization and say, look, this is how I think we need to review it. That's really interesting. Um, that leads me to think about another set of words that he defines for us, which is racist policies. Uh, he's uncomfortable with institutional racism, which is interesting because that's become quite, quite used in, in, in our vernacular. Uh, Bill, uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders used them in their campaign in 2016. We all use it, and he, he kind of uh, backs away, with, away from it because he says um, it, it doesn't put responsibility where responsibilities do, which is on the policies and the policy makers. And Eric, I'm curious to you um, how that's affected your journey, racist policies and institutional racism, however you define them, and, and what, it's, what it's meant for you as a leader here in Tennessee. It was the reason I actually got into uh, politics in general. Um, and, and I guess I'll start off with uh, Miriam that after I said yes, I kind of wondered why I said yes afterwards. Um, well, one thing that I, that I really wrestle with with this book is that it seems like I have to do more work when I consistently feel I'm always doing more work when it comes to racism. Um, and in the world of politics, the reason that I came in this is that I'm a resident of North Nashville. I, I've been there for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm consistently seeing 
uh, the pain of what happens in my community, but I also see the beauty of it, right? But it also really hurts me that people don't always get to see the beauty of North Nashville uh, from, a, uh, from a lot of things that go on within the uh, area and the city and the community. Um, and so I got into politics for the purpose of saying, hey, I wanna make sure that I am able to push uh, against a lot of these, what he calls the racist policies that are going on. Um, and at the same time, what you realize in a lot of ways is that, um, and I think I said this to you earlier, that you have these anarchy uh, Skywalker, uh, uh, Skywalker moments where you wonder in one sense of, I'm here to really do the work, but you really get tired, um, you get weary uh, of wondering and also understanding of I'm trying to push forward, I'm trying to keep on progressing, and I'm not really seeing the progress. And when you're working with other folks within your own community and trying to figure out uh, how to really make this work, uh, they can even look at you as the enemy sometimes. And you're thinking to yourself, no, I did this for the purpose of y'all have somebody on the inside so that we can actually talk about this. But on the other side, they're looking at you, no, now actually you're part of the city, you're part of the state. Um, and then on the other end, uh, having to be in the room sometimes with folks that are never going to understand your community, regardless of what you say. And then they look at it sometimes in a white savior standpoint of uh, really trying to say that, you know, your people don't necessarily know how to do this, let us do this for you. And the reality is we do know what we need to do within our communities. But a lot of times these policies push us in a way that we get boxed in. And then the goalpost is consistently moving. Um, and so I'm always struggling uh, with the fact of this work of, I know why I'm doing this. I know why I want to help out my community. I, uh, I want to see us go further. Uh, but then sometimes you just wonder, have I just jumped into the cycle of things that are never going to end? Yeah, and thank you for that. I don't know if anybody else wants to chime in, but that has come up a lot as I've talked to people about this. Um, it, it, it is, the, the work is already so much, and then we're sort of, Kendi's sort of raising the bar on the work as well and saying, we have to do now this, this, and this to be anti-racist leaders and organizations, and you're already weary, is what you're telling me. And I guess what, I, um, what I've felt since I've moved back to Nashville is that it, it, it's constantly frustrating me in that, um, and we were talking about this, of how far I want it to be and where it is. Go ahead, Jamal. If I can say something about what uh, Brother Brown, brother, brother Eric just laid down, which was, which was so powerful and impactful. And I also think it's contained in the, in the text because what I didn't realize is I didn't realize that he was gonna be talking about one of my favorite books by uh, Kwame Touré, Charles Hamilton, Black Power and the Politics of Liberation. Uh, is that, and, and I think they hold them both in that book and in this book, is that for a lot of the sense, the, whether it's the policy makers or the government, it's like an air of, he's pointing to the fact that it's illegitimate, right? That certain parts of it that cannot update themselves, that cannot be anti-racist, is because it's as foundational as the thought of this perceived democracy in which we lie. Um, and one thing as uh, Brother Eric was talking that, that keeps me hopeful is that that idea of this entire thing being a shamble is really being struggled through and talked about to the point of where we're even doing things on the ground to start flexing our own, whether it's participatory democracy or whether it's participatory budgeting or whether it's people's movement assemblies, we are coming together in ways that are new and foundational so that we can also update ourselves as we go along. Um, and I think that was extremely powerful in what Brother Eric was, was, was saying. 
I actually agree because when I think about institutional racism, and I think about all of the things, because I still believe there is institutional racism. Um, and so I am tired daily as well, even in the work that I do. And I'm hopeful because we see what has just happened in Georgia, right? That started 10 years ago with Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown. And so what we don't see every day on television or on social media, even here in Nashville with Gideon's Army and all of the things that are going on that are grassroots work here, we have people who are still doing the work and started it years and years ago. And so I believe, I have to believe, I have to believe that we will then see the same kinds of outcomes that are now being seen after at least a decade's work in Georgia. And so that gives me some hope, even on the days that I want to go home and curse and gnash my teeth and all of those things, and some days I do, but um, it still gives me some hope even in the days that I am um, really worn out. And so knowing that there are other people in the fight, even if it's not the steps that I'm taking, there are other people in the fight and I can see something happening um, it's helpful to me in the struggle. I think also, in addition to that, it's just when you really con uh, concentrate on that concept of locus, what can I control? What can I do? And then if you think about all the people that have the capability to speak out, that don't speak out, right? So it's like two steps, right? It's one, what can I control? And then two, who else can I bring along with me? And so that to me is what gives me hope and inspiration because I'm bringing people along. I'm having other people speak up. When I say, well, that policy doesn't look right. And then the next person in the room who might've been quiet then speaks out and says, you know what, it really doesn't. I think encouraging small steps, little by little is how we make a bigger stride. And so that's what keeps me going in those moments when I'm like, uh, is, is, is my work really impactful? And it might end up helping someone like Eric, who's in, on the inside and, and in rooms where people don't understand and then don't get it. And, and eventually, with all this work that's happening on the outside, it starts to seep in from places other than you, where you're not the only person you know, talking about it. Um, and, and that's where I, ex I expected Nashville to be, and it's not quite there. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think with the work that y'all are doing and, and these conversations um, and allowing ourselves to, to introduce anti-racism uh, to Nashville uh, as a thing that we are holding ourselves accountable to and asking each other about, um, because that's what Kendi's talking about. You know, it's not fair to be neutral. You can't be neutral anymore. And this isn't the United Colors of Benetton anymore. Um, all those many, many people still sit there. Um, from all races, um, but now it's, are you or are you not? You know, he uses words like racist abuse as opposed to microaggressions. He uses words like racist policy as opposed to institutional, because he says somebody enacted that policy. No longer can we say there's just this random institutional cloud above us and it's not my fault and it's not your fault. And it's, no, somebody passed the law, somebody passed the policy at the school, somebody passed the policy at the employer's place, you know, like you were saying. Somebody didn't let somebody speak up. Somebody intimidated someone when they saw something. Um, and that's, that's, you know, pinpointing it. And I think that that's the work I see. And, but here's the thing that I wanted to ask y'all about, the consequences. There are consequences to this. 
Eric's talked about some of them. I mean, you're, you're nobody's friend a lot of the time. Worse, you're kicked out of your job. You're kicked to the street. You don't have, you know, you don't have income, whatever. There, and Kendi talks about his consequences. And, and it, it's almost like he's asking us to take on more consequences. Um, Abrams had serious consequences two years ago. Serious. I mean, anybody else would have gone home, but she stepped it up. So I think that's the other aspect. What do we do and how do we prepare ourselves and how do we have that appetite for increased risk? Because that's what I hear is increased risk and increased consequences, particularly from non-black citizens as well. I mean, that's, I think that's where the burden is as well. I don't know if anybody's got thought on. Well, I think that's, that's, that's the piece for me is the uncomfortability. Um, I, I have so many examples when I, I mean when I when I read his book um, of things that come up. It's that uncomfortability I think that really brings up a lot of a lot of the things that are even coming up inside of me right now. I mean within the piece of success of him talking about this 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 very strong process of racist policies, but then talking about Trayvon Martin's story, why Trayvon Martin was there, really there to see his father who was there at a girlfriend in the gated community to talk about the weed residue that was in his thing, but then to talk about George Zimmerman, him coming from Virginia, to talk about this process. I don't think people like to talk about the process. We want the miraculous, the right now, the immediately, but we don't talk about the process of how these things come together. Um, and I think one thing that concerns me, even something that I struggle with with anti-racist, I know he's calling everybody to the floor, but my hope is that, I, I really hope that again, this is not on the backs of only black folks, uh, when we talk about anti-racism. So uh, I was talking to a friend earlier before I came here, and one of the things that he, that he was talking about is that we will do these conversations on anti-racism, uh, white supremacy or whatnot, and what usually happens is, I, I, I know within myself, I, I wanna shut down because I know the experiences after 37 years of what goes on in my body. Racism uh, controls everything that's a part of me as a person, period. And, I, and I've had to grapple with that, especially reading this book even more, which is what's really pissing me off, is that I have to realize that racism literally controls every part of my being on a regular, daily basis, millisecond by second, right? Um, but, but the other part of that is then when we get into these sessions and meetings to talk about anti-racism, if I get quiet because I'm dealing with the trauma or I'm being triggered by a conversation that happens, then a white person or a non-black person will come up and say, hey, Eric, we really need your voice right now. We need you to be a part of this. And what I really wanna say is I wanna cuss them out. Because the reality is, is you're, you're wanting me to talk about something that might be entertaining or might be motivational or helps you. But the reality for me is that I constantly have to struggle with what's going on and you still may not get it. Or it makes you feel so uncomfortable that now I become a threat to you and now I'm no longer a part of the conversation because you can't have me to be a part of this conversation. Um, I, I think about white women as victims a lot of times in these conversations because they will play the role, and I'm not trying to generalize all, but I've been in conversations where they will play the role, oh yeah, we're here for you, we want to be a part of this. But the moment that they feel uncomfortable, my black ass has to go. And so that, that is my struggle, I think, even with reading this book right now, is that I am consistently having to remind myself or, 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 or deal with the trigger, to deal with the trauma on a more regular basis, even as I go talk to a therapist about this, and I'm having to now be told that I have to do even more work because I myself participate in racism, which I understand that I do. But damn, when do, when, when do I get to let up? And the reality is I don't. But now I might even have to take on more responsibility because somebody wants me to help them along the way to where they might say, you know what, this is too much for me, I gotta go. 
I love that. And, it, and, it, and if I and if I can add a piece, because I think that's beautiful. Uh, Stokely, Stokely, and Charles Hamilton often talking about organizing rage as a way for Black folks to heal. Um, and I think that's where we are now. I think we are in a place where we need to start organizing our rage, using that flame and really start solving these generational issues that have plagued us on an epigenetic level through generations. So when it comes to even talking about risk, consequence, sacrifice, at this point, it's like, we've already made those. You know, we're not, we're not having a constant, I mean, if we, if we wanna drill down on Nashville very specifically, it's a couple things that we haven't struggled with as a community. One, allowing slaveholding institutions to become colleges to recycle their value after reconstruction. Two, over-policing a very specific poor black communities and leading them to have the highest incarceration rate in the country due to their inability to pay fines. And then three, building an interstate directly through the soul of Nashville. We haven't struggled with those three things. We're still having to have conversations where we can't even get to truth-telling. And Brian Stevenson says in one of his books, before you can restore anything, there has to be an amount of truth-telling being told. And so, even at this point in time, we are still struggling through these things and unwilling to admit that Nashville itself is stuck in a cycle of constantly harming its residents. So what I think uh, Kendi gives us is a roadmap to start healing uh, through actually telling the truth that we are upset, we are enraged, and the problem can't persist anymore. Uh, I'm just taking a moment because I think that what you two have shared, what everyone has shared is, is, is much bigger than just, just the words that came out of your mouth. Um, um, so I, I appreciate that. And I want to say that I think that, you know, as we start to wrap up this conversation, I want to open it up for anybody that wants to say anything else, but I, one of the things that I heard and one of the things that I feel um, in my own interactions with leadership and non-black leadership in this city is that the responsibility is not on our black citizens to steward this forward uh, solely or even mostly, I would say. I think it is on everyone else to also face and read and think and look within um, and, and I think that's how we're gonna get anywhere with those things that you just spoke about. Reckoning with all that. Who even knows that in the city, you know? Um, I wanna open it up for anybody that wants to say anything else. I have um, one final statement um, and it relates to the things that have been said. Um, I am um, in agreement that it is not on the black folks at the table, the non the uh, non whites at the table to do the work. And I also know that um, and hope that these other panels had folks that were not black. The panel I sat in yesterday, we were all black. We were having this conversation. I've had this conversation with my family, with my friends. We have these conversations. And so when you ask Jamel, who knew that? Dang, don't we? we knew it. We knew it. We know it. And so when will the truth telling happen with the white folks who are the policymakers, who are the ones who put us out of the room when they become uncomfortable? 
And it, it becomes tiring, just like Eric said, it becomes tiring to be the one who always has to point it out. And then when you're quiet because of trauma or because you simply refuse to participate in the discussion that the white folks are having, then they require that you be a part of it. And so um, it's very important to me that we figure out a way for non-white folks to, I won't say be allowed, to take the, to take the reins in not being a part of the conversation, in not agreeing to help you all, not you all, but help those folks fix it. Because it is not our responsibility to do that. And so um, I agree to a degree with some of the things in the book. I don't agree with everything in the book, but I believe that I have some responsibility for my own things, but I will not take any longer any responsibility for anybody else's. That's it, thank you. Michelle. Uh, um, um, so I think where I'm at institutionally, uh, especially with doing the majority of my organizing work with my friends, my neighbors, um, black Nashvillians, um, is I'm at a place of profound hope. Um, I think I would not have wanted to exist in any other time and space than this one right now. And the reason is, is because we are living in a time of revolutionary potential as far as how we come out of this. Every system that was considered foundational and stable is volatile and broken at this point in time. And I think what that presents to us is an opportunity to build things in the way that we deserve and that we want. So even with this conversation, I leave this space feeling determined and also seeing self-determination in my community and in the people who are dealing with similar struggles. And to bring it all the way back to the book, um, there's a piece in here that where he talks about how poor working class white people usually do better than poor working class black folks. But at this point in time, that is starting to level out. And in that leveling out, there's an opportunity to start building coalitions, groups, that are struggling with similar issues across things that were considered boundaries at first. So I'm in a place of profound hope. I think all um, leaders, you know, have to do some internal reflection and then also start action, not just thinking, but have to start moving um, forward. Um, as they're evaluating themselves. And we all need to evaluate ourselves and what gaps we may have. But leaders and organizations as a whole could really do a lot more to help our communities um, move forward. And I think that's one of the most important aspects that he kind of talks about in the book is really taking those steps to move forward. I, I really want us to take process processes and histories very seriously. For me to even be the person that I am, it really does come from a string of not only my ancestors, 
not only laws that were put in place, not only the context of where I'm from, the reason why my family had to even come to Nashville, um, uh, the colleges, the education that I now have, um, the, the work that I now do, that is a process. And I think we always are very quick to want to reduce things. Racism in general, the same way of thinking that it's going to be a quick fix. I, I do have hope. Um, and, and, and like Jamil said, I, 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 there, there is a lot of rage that I have to suit up uh, on purpose to stay professional, uh, uh, to do my work. And reality is a lot of times, just like the suit, I never want to wear it. I want to let it go. And, 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 and really seriously deal with it. But to deal with that means that there are uncomfortabilities, there are some, some wrongs, some sinfulnesses that have to be called out. And if we're really truly serious about the work of anti-racism, we are gonna to have to be okay with telling the story. We're gonna to have to be okay with telling the histories. We're gonna to have to be okay with the traumas and the triggering and the person on the other side as the other, not being so nice to you when that comes out but letting them process out to be very serious about this work being done. There's a messiness and a violence that comes even with the reconciliation of trying to really deal with racism. Um, and if we are going to be honest about that, it's not gonna be a smooth process. It's gonna be a lot of work, especially on my side. But if you want me to be on this with uh, other folks that do not necessarily look like me, they're gonna have to realize that I'm still struggling with the violence that's happening and violent things still may come out mentally, uh, psychologically that come out, not necessarily just physically but that, that's, a, that's a way that we have to really take this serious. And that is a very serious relationship that has to be built for that to happen. Um, well, I'll just wrap it up by saying thank you. Uh, but mostly I wanna say thank you because uh, we had a vulnerable and honest and truthful conversation. Um, and that is the only way that change is gonna come and, it, and by, and the other, the audience and the other needs to um, understand how to sit in that um, and, and, and hear that. And I think that that is where a lot of the work is left as well. Um, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for uh, the Metro Human Relations Commission and everyone that has uh, brought this together. And I look forward to more conversations. Just Conversations is presented by the Metro Nashville Human Relations Commission. Executive producers Sarah Imran, Mark Etherly, Barbara Gunlardi, and Bob Farrisee. Directed by Cooper Smith and produced by Alex Bennett, Caroline Pace, and Cooper Smith. Special thanks to the Nashville Public Library, Jenna Schmid, and Mark Crowder. For more information and more episodes, visit JustConversations.org. Follow us on Twitter at JustConversate, on Instagram at JustConversaciones, or on Facebook at JustConversate.